Welcome to The Adult Table, a podcast where we sit down with people in the SACE and our STEM community. We set the virtual table to bring in a diverse set of guests to engage in a casual conversation on their professional career and life. With this podcast, we hope that we can bridge the gap between the hierarchy involved with growing up. We can redefine what it means to be able to figuratively sit at the adult table. I'm one of your co-hosts, Jason Chin. And I'm your other co-host, Jenny Chung. Today, we have a really special guest with us. Dennis Hirotsu, pronouns he, him, joins us at the adult table. Dennis has had a 35-year career at P&G, where he retired as vice president of R&D. His career spanned multiple P&G businesses from baby care, feminine care, household cleaners, and hair color. Dennis also supported the API community as the executive sponsor for APIs in R&D within P&G. And then Dennis has also previously served on the SACE board and currently is an executive advisor for SACE following his retirement from P&G in 2016. So thank you so much for coming on, Dennis. It's an honor to have you on our podcast, um, especially seeing you around SACE for so long, giving your talks and workshops and stuff like that. As you said, that you are SACE famous. <laughs> and uh, yeah, we really appreciate your time. And to start, you know, how are things with you? What have you been working on? What what have you been up to? Oh, well, first of all, thanks for having me. Uh, it's an honor to be with you guys. And um, yeah, so I've been retired for six years from PNG. Um, and one of the things I've learned, I learned a lot about myself, actually, when you don't actually have to work anymore. And I learned that I like to work, but I like to have a lot of diverse things going on. So I've actually been doing some new hire training for Asians at PNG and also some mid-level training. I'm doing angel investing where we invest as a group in startup companies and learning about the startup ecosystem, which has been fantastic. Uh, I decided to get involved in government. So I'm on the planning commission in my city and we review commercial projects. Um, in addition to, you know, I'm in a philosophical book group because I really love philosophy and religion. So if we want to talk about that, we could talk about that. Uh, yeah, I joined a golf club. I'm in a running group. I'm in a biking group. You know, it's just really wow. fantastic. So I, I, I highly recommend retirement it is, and it's <laughs> worth working for, by the way, it's worth working for. It's especially good after you've worked for a few years, like 35. <laughs> Oh, yeah, you've definitely been keeping busy with that, <laughs> with everything after retirement. But that's really awesome to hear. And just a good perspective, too, because I think like a lot of younger people kind of joke about like retiring early on, but you saying kind of the rewards will really be more impactful after after a good career. Actually, you brought up being involved, I guess, like in your community on the planning commission. I one like kind of sticked out to me, especially just because I'm a civil engineer working kind of on like transportation projects. So I was just curious what that entails and like how your experience has led you to being involved there. Yeah, sure. So government's a funny thing. Everybody likes to complain about the government, but nobody wants to do the government, right? And so upon, you know, retiring, I had time and you realize if you actually work in a company, a corporate America kind of job or even a company job and you learn to manage people and work across different boundaries and agendas, you develop some skills that are really valuable for good government, you know, using good judgment. What our commission does is we oversee all the commercial buildings in my city, which is Montgomery, Ohio. It's not Cincinnati. It's not the jumbo city. It's a 10,000 person city. But, you know, there's a lot of development goes on and there's conflicts between the people who live there 
and the people who commercial people who want to put a building in or a car dealership or you know all do all of these things and how we have a code to really moderate that but there's a lot of judgment involved so how do you listen to all the parties right tease out what really should be a good fair judgment on yes or no or yes if you make these kinds of changes and we have a group of seven uh, people on the commission who basically make the who give it the yes or no on whether they can go forward. They end up getting voted on by council, but generally whatever we recommend is what happens. Oh, got it. Yeah, that kind of sounds familiar to some, I guess, like public meetings for just like local projects. And there's always contention among among the public and <laughs> and the people trying to start up those projects, but really interesting to hear. And kind of jumping back to you being involved in a lot of different things in retirement, I was just wondering like if that all kind of started just like kind of directly after retirement or you were kind of involved in some of that beforehand. I think like one of the big questions that I have from someone at a more executive level is like kind of how you took on like your work-life balance. So I was wondering if you had time for that throughout your career or that just felt more of like accessible after you kind of retired. Yeah, a lot of these pieces were there in my job okay. uh, because my corporate job was pretty all-consuming. Uh, to be honest. I, and I think any of you guys working in companies or even bigger companies just find that it's just the work is very, very consuming. And you always, at least for me, I always wanted to accomplish more. I wanted to contribute more and it's endless. You you have to put your own brakes on it on, in terms of what you're going to go do. But within the job, I found ways to actually govern, do some government work within a corporation in terms of how the function of R&D is managed. Of course, I did my running on the side to stay fit. Um, you know, I did training. Um, I did training talks for the Asian community and actually beyond the Asian community. And I found I really enjoyed the teaching aspect of that. Um, and, and I found it really challenging to get better and better. So I was doing a lot of these things in a smaller way at PNG. But if you're at a company, pretty much the company gets to dictate a lot of how your time is spent, right? Um, and when you retire... You get to kind of go, I'm going to keep these things and I'm going to kind of like not do those things anymore right. uh, because they aren't the things that really energize me and other people do them very well. Mm -hmm. You know, and nobody tells me, you know, Dennis, this is your retirement job description. I go, no, 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 no. Nobody gets to give me, only my wife gives to add to my job description <laughs> without question. So uh, nobody else. So, you know, and you end, you end up uh, taking the parts. In fact, I see a lot of continuity from what I did uh, in the corporate world, but being able to do it in a different way. Hmm. Yeah, it's pretty neat. Cause you also mentioned about like being an investor for startups and that sort of thing. Is that similar in the way that you would maybe like typically pick projects and stuff like that within your work? A absolutely. So the start, the startup community and these startups that come our way, uh, and I'm a member of a, of a investment group called Queen City Angels. It's a large angel group in Cincinnati, Ohio. Um, but we see we see startups from national nat all across the country come to us. You know, they all want money and they all have a pitch. You mm -hmm. know, it's not really Shark Tank. We go a lot more in depth than you see on TV uh, okay. to assess where they're going to put our real money into this thing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, none of us are Mark Cuban, you know, that have hundreds of millions of dollars, but we all have money to put in these. And uh, what you find, I find, is they're very much like upstream R&D projects where there's an idea, there's a prototype, there's some initial reason to believe, there's a sense of cost, right? But they're going to need money to get more to a demonstration of the viability, right? And does it work? 
And along the way, they're going to pivot, right? Just like even our upstream R&D projects, many of them just start this way and then they kind of have to go this way and then we learn more and they go this way. So I have experience managing those uh, as an R&D manager at Procter & Gamble. So to me, it was very, very comfortable. Uh, what's really great about it, which is also true of my R&D job, is you get to see new stuff, right? You get to see all kinds of ideas and you know where the world of AI is going, where the world of robotics is going. It, it's, it's just absolutely fascinating. Medical devices, biotech, right? You know, areas that I wouldn't spend much time thinking about, to be honest, all the time at PNG, I see a lot of in this environment. It's fun. Oh, awesome. Is there any like product or group that's come up to you that you that you invested in or like you kind of committed to at PNG that you've found like particularly satisfying and seeing how they've grown since then? Yeah, well, I've I've been at this five years. So when when you invest in startups and if they're really, really truly Early because where we invest, an angel investor, I didn't understand this before I retired, is they, they use their own money. They they borrow from friends and family who kind of like them or who are willing to invest in them, mom and dad, even sometimes, but they're not ready for venture capital. So venture capital, they're going to need like millions of dollars. So, you know, these guys generally need anywhere from five hundred thousand to a million dollars. And there's a group of people who pull their money together. And even we do investments and we even uh, syndicate with other angel groups to invest. So um, at, at the end of the day, there's a lot of vetting we make and we coach them. And to your point, you know, there's a, there's just some very, very common things they need to think through that with my experience commercializing things in a, um, a product world, I can really give them suggestions, advice. Our group puts all our money together and we invest as a group, but then we can inv individually invest our own money on the things we really, really like to add on to these companies, Right. So I can't give away some of these companies because it's confidential that we invest in them. Uh, it's up to them to tell people who's investing in them. I but I can tell you, it's just a broad range of things. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. It sounds like fun, doesn't it? It does sound interesting. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. Let me tell you. Again, did, worth working for. <laughs> how did you get like introduced to this? Were you... Yeah. Oh, like you knew someone that was in within like the startup community or something like that, or actually, there's a number of ex PNG people in there. Oh, so perfect. the company I the company I work for is just really really fond of innovation, and it mm -hmm. tends to attract people who love innovation. So no surprise, I joined. You know, other people I knew said, "Hey, why don't you come join Queen City Angels?" So I'm like, "Okay, let me go check it out." Mm -hmm. You know, but the reality is, they don't ask uh, current retire current employees because it does take time. It takes time to really vet these companies and understand right. them before you invest. Do you have kind of like specific goals for yourself in being involved in this investment group? Or is it kind of just being able to use your time after, I guess? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, yeah my, my, I have a I have goals, which is to to just help these startups, right? To offer something of value to them. Now, of course, in terms of funding, but also in terms of just some guidance, some ways to think about things, because I don't know their technology. They know their technology or their ideas or their industry better than I ever will, right? But I can help them think about questions and think about how you form this business in a way that becomes very attractive. And what most of these people want to do is they want to do a startup and then actually sell it to a company that can really scale it and then go to go do another business, right? They're, they tend to be more entrepreneurs like that. 
So that's very satisfying. I want to be able to make a difference like that. Uh, I want to not lose money. <laughs> I'm not doing this to get rich, right? Got but it. also, you know, put my money to good purpose, right? So if these turn into successful companies that employ people and make a difference in the world, that's satisfaction. Well, I guess, uh, I guess pivoting to your experience at P&G, where you worked basically 35 years, right? You mentioned for a bulk of your career. And I know you worked in like many different settings, like geographically, but also like time-wise, it's like you've probably seen like a large shift of maybe different types of people come in the industry and um, go through different levels of, I guess, work management hierarchy. I kind of wanted to get your perspective on how what differences you saw, like maybe through the different geographical locations you've been at, um, but also as you were working through the years and also rising up the ranks, like how people you, around you, who you worked with, what their mindset was like. And I don't know if, if anything has changed in like the last whatever years. I know that's like a long you know, question, Je- Jenny, th- no, that is like 30 questions in one yeah, I know. question. Okay. I guess like uh, we'll break it down into like maybe the difference of work culture in your experience from the different, I guess we'll, we'll talk about like the different generations that you have. Yeah. Um, yeah. So a, a couple of examples, you know, so just in case the audience doesn't know. So I, I started, I, I'm a Californian, uh, native Californian, third generation. So, you know, I'm kind of American assimilated, I guess you can call it. I grew up in rural California even. So after I graduated from college at Berkeley, I went to Cincinnati, Ohio to work at PNG. And I didn't dream of going to Cincinnati, Ohio from California, but the job just sounded too interesting. I was a chemical engineer. I could work on disposable diapers. I could design baby diapers. That's just too fun, right? So I went and I found I just really enjoyed it. And I was I found a, that I had talents that I could build and apply to that that were really satisfying. Um, and then I went to Asia for six and a half years, came back to Cincinnati for a year, went back to Asia for another six and a half years to grow our Pampers and feminine protection business in Asia. Then I went to Connecticut to help our hair color business, which we had acquired, came back to Cincinnati, worked in corporate for a while, and then retired. Um, so it's kind of a really wild kind of career. A, a, a couple of things I'd offer on this, and then I'd give you a perspective of what I found, is none of it was predictable. So one observation I give to many people is don't really worry about creating a five-year plan because after about three years, you'll be like, oh my gosh, why did I spend time creating a five-year plan for my career? I mean, it just different opportunities raised, different things happen. And that was my career. I didn't plan any of that, right? It's just kind of opportunities and interest and, you know, like, let's go do that, right? It wasn't like month to month, you know, it was, you know, year to year, maybe a couple of years thinking ahead, sometimes three, but never more than that. Um, now, and as I did it, when, the, when I joined the company, it was $17 billion in sales. And when I left the company, it was closer to $80 billion in sales. Wow. And as a company gets bigger, it gets harder to see how you as an individual make a difference, as you can easily imagine. You feel like a you can feel like a small cog in a big wheel. And I found I had to make extra effort, even for myself as an executive, to carve out my space to really make a difference, but also for my team, right? So that they didn't feel like they were a part of a $80 billion behemoth, right? With complex decision-making. 
Um, you know, many of the people, and I'll be honest, like I saw people go to the West Coast to work in tech, right? Like, oh, well, tech is going to be different than all of those. Well, you know, tech has gotten big. Google's a big company now. Apple's a big company. Now we're starting to see some layoffs when the economy goes down, right? As you guys may have noticed, right? Because, you know, it's it's just the, the nature of the beast in, in, in the world. Now, some people may say, mm, I don't like that. I'm going to go work in a startup, right? I'm going to go work in startups. And I see these startups, you know, but the startups don't have the healthcare benefits. They don't have all the career opportunities. You know, my whole career that I just did, you're not going to find that in a startup, right? It's just not going to happen. And, and the bigger companies offer a lot of things. So you just have to be mature about that. And so what I saw, first of all, was that change is as the company became bigger, it became more important to figure out how to make a real difference as a person, right? Because there are so many people, the business is big. Um, the second thing I found, Asia versus the US is, and this is a little secret, especially you're a manager, you know, if you've got a bit of responsibility, authority, you have a budget, it's better, it's more fun to work away from headquarters than inside a headquarters because less people are there to watch over you and you get to do a lot of other things. And you get a lot more ownership of the business. I'll be just frank about that, right? You know, in Cincinnati, I'd have to spend lots of time in meetings just to get agreement to certain things. In Asia, I just did them because, <laughs> you know, you're 12, 13, 14 hours away, right? So people don't have time to, to deal with that. So you get more freedom in those things. I've learned, I worked in big successful businesses like Pampers. I've learned in very much struggling businesses like Hair Color. And people think those are lousy assignments to go work at these struggling businesses. But if the company is really interested in turning around, those are the best assignments to have. Because mm -hmm. since it's going bad, you could try all kinds of things, right? And you have a lot of authority because if they knew how to fix it, somebody would have already. And they sent you in as part of the team to go make it happen. You know, and I see a lot of people at PNG would shy away from those assignments, but they lose the promotion opportunities that I had. So, you know, that culture is also always there. Um, the other thing that's happened is, I'll tell you the truth, is when I was there, I could count the Asian Americans at the company on two hands that I met. Uh, by the time I left, just in R&D, just one function was over 500 people. So, you know, the, the Asian diversity, the level of diversity that's changed, the women at PNG in hierarchy has just been phenomenal to see. So those are some of the changes I saw. Yeah, that's some really great insight. I think um, even with like the growing, growing company and stuff like that, or a growing team, I think a lot of, well, I mean, I work in a big company, so I, I feel like I don't really see much of the, like the growth aspect or maybe not yet already, but I think it's something I relate to in like just working um, in like a club or organization where you grow a club um, from like a tiny size and then it's like it's gotten bigger so relating to like in college when I when we were in SACE <laughs> yeah we saw it and when I by the time I left it was already this like its own larger thing um, within the larger community as well because SACE was more established after the 10 years that had been running so that's pretty oh cool. and if you've done that Jenny so <laughs> you, you and this is as you move up right? So managers are rewarded, right? You know, that, if you think about the first line worker, the second, the management, this, you know, and people go, oh, you know what? 
they don't seem to do much, right? They don't actually do real work up there. If you think of real work as actually solving the technical problems, that's really, really true. But if you've been at SACE trying to run a chapter or try to run a lead a volunteer group, the marketing group or something, managing people is no piece of cake, right? <laughs> and getting everybody to align and deliver results mm -hmm. as a team, you know, there's going to be human conflict. How do you set a vision? How do you keep people on track? How do you make sure everyone gets the coaching they need to grow the opportunity to really get meaning out of their work? That is challenging. I loved it, right? Or I wouldn't have stayed in it. But, you know, I, you know, maybe this is self-serving, but I thought the managers earned their money at P&G. Mm. Did you like early on in your career, I know you said like kind of being hesitant about like five-year plans or anything like that, but early on in your career, was that something that you sought after, like getting into those managerial positions? And like, uh, yeah. What do you think like yeah. you learned kind of in that beginning stage of learning? To I was, yeah, but I was naive, right? Okay. I, I wanted to be a manager because I wanted the power and I wanted the money, mm. right? I mean, I'll, I'll just be frank, right? I'll be, I'll be honest. The reason I became a chemical engineer because I saw, I looked in a book and it said, oh, these pay really good salaries. I can, oh, yeah. I don't have to live with, I can, I don't have to live with mom and dad, That's right? Because. <laughs> I just don't want to live with mom and dad. I mean, mom and dad, I love them. I love them to death, right? But they're just going to lecture to me every day. I don't want to live with them. So, you know, I so I had to get out of the house. And I just thought, you know, and, and I don't blame kids, right? For just trying to find a job and, you know, get their get their feet under them, the ground. Get promoted. You, you, you get a higher salary and all of that. I didn't quite recognize the responsibility that goes with it. And at first, it was kind of terrifying, because people's careers, you know, are in your hands, you know, mm -hmm. how well you coach them, how will you direct them, what assignments you give them. I didn't actually really want to be responsible for that, right? I just wanted the power and the money. <laughs> but, <laughs> but over time, you know, I realized, you know, this is actually a really good thing. It's really satisfying to learn to get better at it, grow people, spend time coaching them, mm -hmm. right? Even if it didn't help you, it makes the organization stronger, you know, and you learn over time, if you're a good manager, wow, your person really did well. The best thing for them is now to move beyond you, right? And move over here, even though, you know, you're, you don't want to let them go. So you're just kind of like, okay, you, you can have my wonderful person here. Cause that's really good for them. Okay. But please take care of them. And no, no, I'm just not pushing them to you. And if you don't want them, give them back to me anytime. And they're like, no, 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 let go. Let go, Dennis. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but you learn to just, that's very, very much a part of growing as a leader, as a manager, right? Is the organization, the other people are just, you know, have a value equal or more than yourself, right? Mm -hmm. I kind of jumping back into you jumping to different locations, like throughout your career in P&G, outside of kind of the professional side, but like, how was that transition, like settling into new areas, either like learning about like their culture or just like establishing like a life there. I know you mentioned like yeah. six years in Asia for two different times. So a substantial amount of time to be out there. How was that process for you? Well, I could even start with Cincinnati. Okay. So what maybe I hadn't covered is I did grow up in rural California outside of Sacramento. I considered Sacramento the big city. And then I went to Berkeley, you know, in the Bay Area. And that's like, those are really big cities with lots more Asians. Um, and so when I went to Cincinnati, it was more like Sacramento when I was growing up. Okay. My poor wife was from Oakland. 
And she was like, do they have any Asian people here? Like, I think people are staring at us, right? <laughs> I'm like, you know, and I growing up in a very rural kind of environment, I didn't even notice. So that was culture shock number one for her, mm-hmm. not for me. Uh, I wasn't as empathetic as now as I was then, and she will point that out to me, but but I've gotten better. But then we both went to Japan, and that was a culture shock unto its own because I wondered, because I know I have some Asian culture growing up. We celebrated, you know, uh, New Year's like Japanese uh, do. We we went to the church, Buddhist church. We did Obon, Hanamatsuri, for those of you who are Japanese-American. So we did very, very traditional. So I go, oh, you know, I must be kind of half Japanese and half American. And I went to Japan and I was like, Actually, no, I'm kind of 90% American, maybe 95 and 5% Japanese. And the Japanese people were pretty assertive in making sure I understood that I wasn't very Japanese um, because I just, first of all, I didn't speak much Japanese, Mm -hmm. Um, but the culture is very, very different, right? It's very, very different. Um, and I would say my parents were more 50-50 because um, they were born in the U.S. My my grandparents, my grandmother only spoke Japanese and she came from Jap- Japan when she was in her 20s. So you, you can now imagine, I'm just like wondering, I'd never been to Japan and I went there and I was like, oh my goodness, right? And, uh, and so people expect, of course, me to speak Japanese. I learned I have a very Japanese face. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they see me and they go, you know, da 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 and I'm like, you know, speaking in English, and they're kind of like, what's wrong with this person? Um, you know, must be Korean. <laughs> you know, we must have, we must have missed it. Um, but, but the end of the day, you know, uh, um, I learned to speak just really crummy Japanese. I always told them I was an American and, and, and got along that way. But to be quite honest, there were things that I just love, love about Asia and love about Japan. You know, in a lot of ways, it's weird because I kind of felt like a stranger in a strange land, but I also felt at home, if if that makes any sense. It's kind of like, it's just weird. It's just unusual. Yeah. No, I, I relate to that too. Because whenever, I think the last time I went to China was maybe like eight years ago. But the thing is, they can tell, like, even though I'm Chinese and I look Chinese, but they can tell that I was born in America just by my mannerisms and how I dress. Yeah. And so they're immediately able to point out like, oh, like she's not from here, but she kind of looks like us, <laughs> which is interesting. But then in America, obviously, it's like kind of the other way where it's like, oh, I'm yeah. also in like a predominantly Italian town. So everyone's like, oh, like you don't look like us. So you must not be from here, though. I was <laughs> right. So it's like yeah. that intersectionality of like being Asian and also American. You get it. You yeah. <laughs> you know exactly. Well, but think about this. You know, people, Japanese people say you walk like an American just from the way you walk. Yeah. Right. And I go, what do you mean for the way I walk? Well, Japanese people, you know, walk a little more like you just have this casual, you know, American walk about you, <laughs> you know? So in some ways you're, you're, you're out of place. Right. Mm-hmm. But then, especially when I'm eating the food, I'm like, this is home, man. I, I mean, <laughs> this is my place. <laughs> right. Cause uh, when I was there, actually, I had responsibility over Japan, Korea, China, Taiwan, Philippines, Thailand. I was like, man, this place has the greatest food ever, right? <laughs> I, I didn't leave. I didn't leave California co- to go to Cincinnati because I hated the weather. Uh, I didn't leave Asia 
for the U.S. because I hated the food. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it was amazing, right? And I felt very much at home. And some of the cultural things I felt at home, Mm. right? So interesting. Like what sort of cultural things did you feel? Yeah. So, so especially like in Japan, Mm-hmm. everyone expected to form a line people get in line and they're patient mm-hmm. they don't bump into each other my very very funny thing is i realize how japanese i am because the japanese form a line they all get in this beautiful straight line if you go to japanese immigration you'll see this beautiful straight line everybody's in line everybody gives each other space they kind of go move along but then you go to korea and they also form a line but they start pushing on you in the back like hurry up hurry up for some reason in Seoul, everybody's in a hurry, right? It's like, yeah. don't be surprised you get bumped into. Like getting bumped into physically, that's not a big deal in Korea. Japanese, you know, that you got you have your space. China, when I went there, mainland, it was like a just a like there's a poor person trying to do service, and it's just a mob, just a <laughs> mob forms around them. So you gotta fight, you know. It's kind of like going going to in America, like going to Ranch 99 at the fish counter. It's like you know, <laughs> you ever been to one of those places? Uh, yeah. It's like like whoa everyone for themselves right so you know it's just it's, it's it's fascinating the things that you see and you learn when you live there i lived for 13 years traveled all over um but i love asia frankly it really uh has a special place in my heart from all that do you have plans to go back anytime soon like just for vacation or anything well, yeah well yeah so in fact i'm going next month because my my wife is a marathon runner and she's running the tokyo marathon oh, oh wow Cool. Yeah. And she's like, you're, you're coming with me. And I go, I'm absolutely coming with you because I'm going to have some udon. I'm going to have some sashimi. I'm going to have some tepan. <laughs> that's, that's my agenda. She's like, are you going to watch you in the marathon? Yeah, I'll watch you in the marathon too. But <laughs> <laughs> Catch up with some old friends. Right. It's like, no. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. While she's like meal prep or like prepping her meals for her run, you're <laughs> just going out. So, and eating. <laughs> yeah. So you are you a runner, Jason? Uh, yeah, I actually used to. I used to run cross country in high school, and then this past year, I actually ran a half marathon. That was kind of like okay. my my big goal for for last year. Good for <laughs> you. So one of my retirement projects was to run a marathon. Okay. Because my wife has run my wife has run twenty two of these things. Oh, wow. And she, I, I go, that's crazy. She goes, you've never run one, so I ran one. And now I say, that's crazy. <laughs> so you would not do another one. <laughs> I, I am I am a one and done marathoner <laughs> because the training, the training and the diet involved. So the conflict I already know that's going to happen is she's going to, of course, want to eat very marathon friendly. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to want to go out all night. <laughs> and she's going to be like, well, it's time to go go to bed in the, you know, get an early night, you know, or get a big night's sleep, you know, because we're going a couple days early. And I'm going to be like, well, maybe I'll go with my friends. Oh, you're going to come strolling into the hotel room at two in the morning after going to a karaoke bar. And, you know, I'm like, okay, <laughs> fine. I'm, I'm going to be have moderated fun in uh, Tokyo mm. in March. <laughs> <laughs> Will you have time like after the marathon at least? To- yeah. I'm counting on that. Yes, I'm counting on that. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of going back to just like the unpredictability of like your career and like things just changing all the time. I was just wondering if you think back to like any like sliding door moments or like things that you think your career could have just gone completely in a different direction if you had just made like one or two 
different decisions? Is that something that one, you like even think about or, and like two, if so, like what's kind of one of those things that, that highlights that? Well, yeah. So we touched on one of them, which was, you know, actually when I was about eight years with the company, I I kind of promised my wife that I'd take her back to California, oh, wow. which I never, which I never did. Actually, when I took her to Cincinnati, I kind of promised that I'd take her back to California and she wasn't pushing, but she's kind of like, you know, do you think maybe we go back to California? And, and, um, uh, she was pregnant with our first child. And I started to actually look, start looking for other jobs. Mm. Right. Even though I love my job at PNG, it's like, okay, you know, I did kind of promise. And importantly, I promised her mother that I'd bring her back, but I broke that one too. But anyway, you know, and then the, uh, the, the Japan opportunity came up, right. Which was kind of like, okay, what, do, what do we, what do we do? Right. And uh, it just really changed my trajectory of my career. It changed my mindset about the company. Um, it changed my mindset about the world, frankly, um, you know, I think I'm a very different person because of the experience and what I learned. So I think that was a big one. Another smaller one, you know, which I thought about was, you know, I never heard this word sliding door moment until you guys sent that to me. I'm like, okay, wow. Is one time I was strolling around the basement and there were, there are offices and all the floors of this innovation center, technical center. And uh, I ran into this guy who I knew who suddenly took an office in the basement. His name was Bud Martin. And, you know, I just got to chatting with the guy. And he was like a 30-year veteran of PNG, um, but a really smart guy. But he never really went high on the management ladder, but really knowledgeable. And I just started talking to him about stuff and about my projects and my work. And he just started poking and challenging me about like, why are you doing that? And what do you think about next? And I go, well, I'm thinking this. I go, why are you thinking that? You know, do you think about this? And I go, no, I didn't think of. So we had this conversation for an hour and I said, okay, you know what? I'm going to come down. Like I have some free time next week. You know, I'll come down. He go, yeah, come on down. So we ended up having these chats like twice, once a week when I'd have free time. Sometimes I'd even take my lunch down and go talk to him about stuff. And it's just amazing how wisdom will show up in the most unusual places, very unusual places that can really shape, you know, and elevate your thinking. Um, It changed the way I think. I got a lot sharper. I mean, there's nothing like someone pounding your ideas who's really smart and really has seen, been there, done that, seen it, you know, and he's just one of those guys like in, in the PNG polite conference rooms, he wouldn't talk like that, right? But with just Dennis, that, you know, that kid who just keeps showing up and wants to get pounded away, he was like, I'll give it to him. He just keeps, <laughs> keeps coming back, right? It is really, really powerful to have someone like that. You know, you can call that a mentor, right? It, it's a form of mentorship, but it was just phenomenal for me. It's pretty cool. Yeah. I think like with now with the culture and stuff, finding mentors or even there's like different types of mentors that you could have, right? With like one that's like in your field that you want to go into, one that's kind of like maybe in some other industry that you're maybe interested in and that sort of thing. But I think it's like always encouraged in us or has been in my experience, at least to find a mentor like as soon as you can and be able to get assistance where or resources that you're looking for. And I don't know, I think I struggle with that at, at times because I don't know what I want to ask sometimes. I don't know what I want in my career as of yet. So I'm still figuring yeah. that out. But I think 
just being able to have someone to talk through like the daily and like that seems yeah. pretty nice and, and helpful. well and, and and there's two types of mentorship mm -hmm. uh, I well there's a lot of tip so I never really had like a single mentor in my career but I had a lot of advisors so you could call that mentorship, but I'd go to these people for career kind of advice. I'd go to these kind of people for strategic thinking, uh, bouncing off. I go to these kind of people uh, to train me on things. I'm, when I was in hair color, I didn't know anything about hair color. I, I couldn't color. I had never colored my hair. I was afraid to do it that I might mess it up. So I just took one of the people in my team who was an expert on hair color. And I said, you're my technical mentor, if you don't mind. Mm -hmm. And we'll have lunch. And I just want, I'm going to ask a lot of questions. I want you to teach me about hair color, right? How does it work? Where it goes wrong, where it goes right. You know, so I, I wouldn't just limit mentorship to career, okay. right? Mm -hmm. And for this one guy, and he took the time, which I appreciate. So I always take the time because he did it for me is he would, he would listen to my work and my thinking, you know, he would look at my reports. I was into my little one page summaries and he'd take a look at them and go, what are you thinking here? Why are you going to do that? Right? Have you looked at this? Have you ever thought about this? Do you know this is true? Da, da, da. I'd be like, oh, wow. Right? Mm -hmm. And I just learned a lot. And I'd come back. And I think he had fun because he could see that I was growing. I I'll give you I'll give you a funny. I'm, I'm getting ready for an Asia training program. So I pull out for, for these Asia training programs. I pull this out. You'll, maybe you'll see this. Let me, let me see if I got a book. Here we go. Here's a book. So... If, you know what this is? Have no. you ever seen one of these? No. So when I was a kid, this was a toy called a Weeble. And the, the, the song they made up for it was called Weebles, They Wobble, But They Don't Fall Down. So all of your young audience will have no idea what I'm talking about. But this is a Weeble. And one of the things I try to train these young Asians at PNG on is you got to think like a Weeble. So when someone like takes your idea and knocks it over, don't just lay on the ground and bleed to death. You just bounce right back up. <laughs> Tell them what you what you learned from that experience and then go get more, right? Don't be afraid. Look at this weevil. He keeps getting back up, you know? He keeps just bouncing right on up. You know, look at him. You know, he's he's fine. So, you know, it's and it's a hard thing to really build that that internal strength. Mm -hmm. Um and believe me, if you get pounded down in a meeting of 30 people, it's harder. <laughs> but that was why it was such a sliding door moment. It was one-on-one, -on -one, just me and Bud. And he would just knock my ideas around. And, you know, it's like, but I could tell it was love, right? He was really trying to help me. Mm -hmm. Do you find yourself, like you were mentioning, that you're now like a mentor to... Um, a lot of people like do you find that like that's aligned to like your mentorship style where you're challenging a lot of mentees like ideas and like just trying to challenge them to think differently is that kind of like where you got that or is it kind of a mix how would you yes yeah yes and yeah, well that, and that's a part if you become a manager at a larger company you know you do develop a sense of when people just need some encouragement and mm -hmm. When, you know, because if people are down and they're just coming to you for advice, there's no reason to pound them around and tell them, you know, all the things they haven't thought through. And, that, you know, that, that's just not necessary. Right. Um, you know, but if if people are really feeling like good about what they've got, but they really want to pressure test it. Right. I'm a good guy to bring it to because I'll give it to you. Right. <laughs> you know, I'll poke at it. I'll challenge you. 
you know, it's it's tough love, but I, I try to do it in a way that they know that it's love. You know, I, I'm really doing it for their best interest. Not I'm not trying to like beat them up or anything. Right. <laughs> you know, um, but I was gonna pivot to like because you mentioned you're giving a talk. Um and you and you have been known to like give these talks or give like talks to the SACE community, and that's how a lot of people know you. But I was kind of wondering like when when did that start happening? And uh like the seminars and stuff that you've been giving in general? When did hmm. you decide to do that? When did I decide to do that? I, it, it started happening in my career at PNG. So at, at these larger companies, you know, they have ERGs, employee resource groups. At PNG, they call them affinity groups. And if you get to a certain level, all of these affinity groups want to get to know the executives who rose up as a part of the, you know, of the affinity. So the Asian group, it usually started there, would often ask for, hey, can you come like give us insights, perspective, whatever, whatever, right? So it made me think hard about, you know, what can I give people that's useful, right? Something that took me a while to figure out. Maybe nobody taught me some of these things, but now that I've done this, I've kind of got something I can, you know, put it in a teachable format and give it to you with real examples because I've lived these examples. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just started getting, I found I enjoyed it. Uh, it was rewarding. And so I just started doing more of it. Mm-hmm. You know, so I, I have, you know, you think you've seen me in say stock, I've, you know, I've got a series of like a bunch of these things right. that, that I've done over time, you know, and they've just gotten better and better each time I've done them because it's gotten even clearer in my mind how I convey that to somebody. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. I don't know if you've heard my storytelling talk. That's a killer. <laughs> no, I don't. I don't think so. <laughs> uh, uh, my, my storytelling talk involves my experience wearing feminine protection pads. Oh, I did hear this at a workshop. Yes, I remember. Yeah, so there there yeah. you go. Right. <laughs> so it's, it, it only gets better. You know, yeah. the femcare stories only get better. You know, mm-hmm. imagine a guy. I've got three older brothers, right? When I grew up, there were eight men in my house and one woman who was my mother. My grandfather, my two uncles, my three brothers, and me, and my dad in the same house with my mother. And then where do I end up working at PNG? In feminine protection. <laughs> but anyway, that's a, that was that was an aside. Yeah. So, you know, I find that I enjoy it. So the problem is I've done so much of it, I've become like Sace famous, as you say. So people come yes. up and go, oh, I go, what do I know? <laughs> yeah like knowing that you've been doing so much do you kind of like you're just wondering kind of how that preparation is like emotionally and mentally and like is that kind of similar for each talk or or how was it like maybe first time you remember doing something like that because I think like when Jenny and I think about our podcast experience and like prepping for this a lot of times like we come in like a little bit of nerves and like kind of have to like hype ourselves up a little bit or kind of have to has some like positive mm-hmm. reinforcement for each other. But yeah, we're just wondering kind of like from your perspective of having a lot of these talks. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I would, I would say, even though I've done a lot of this, if there's not some anxiety a little bit, something's wrong, okay. right? <laughs> it, you know, then you're, then you're not really ready, right? Because, or, or at least, you know, because I want it to be useful, mm-hmm. right? You know, if you don't care about whether it's going to be any good or not, then yeah, you could have no nerves at all. But then, should you even be doing it at all, right? <laughs> I mean, what makes what makes you nervous is, oh, I want this to be useful, 
right? I also don't want to, you know, go, blah, 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 you know, also, but, you know, I want it to be useful. So it's like, okay, I'll do some, you know, preparation. I'll think about it. Of course, how do I help make it good? I can tell you, you know, I bet the first podcast you did, you guys were kind of like little basket cases, right? And I get that, <laughs> you know, first time I had to stand up in front of a group of 10 people at PNG, do a presentation, you know, it's like, you know, like, mm. Mm-hmm. 35 years later, it's a lot calmer. Mm. The, yeah. the, the other thing I, I'll tell you guys that's really, really important, what's what really is great if you do this enough. And you I really applaud you guys for doing this, frankly. Um, you know, but and when you do it live, right, it's really, really challenging because it is what it is live, right? There's no there's no backseas live. What I have found is if you do it enough. Your focus changes from you to the audience, right? And that's when you can really convey a message better because you're not subcom, you know, you're not going, oh, how do I say this right? Or, ooh, did I do that correct? Or da 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 da. But you almost feel one with the audience. So it just gets natural to kind of like say, hey, you know, we're, we're together on this, right? Even if I'm making a presentation or, training on storytelling or strategic thinking or whatever. It's not like Dennis talking and you're listening. We're, we're having a shared experience here and to really be able to live in that experience while you're doing presentation. That's really, really exciting. Mm. Yeah. I can definitely relate to that idea of like just being in your head a lot and like thinking are like your words coming across well. And I think that's one of the benefits that you mentioned too, of podcasting where luckily we're able to edit stuff. So Sometimes when Jenny and I are a little slower to kind of remember where we're at or um, but we can now focus and like kind of have that wall down and just really focus in on like that. This is a conversation trying to be very articulate or perfect. You, you, you know, it's not fair because when I was younger, I never had an edit button. But thanks to the Internet and all the computer capability that you guys have, you kind of go, oh, OK, let's edit that one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, but it's it's great. I can see you guys are comfortable. You're having fun, right? Yeah. So I, I will say the one caveat is probably listening to yourself though when you're editing over and over. Be like, oh, why did I say it like that? Or like, why is my intonation like this way? But it's like it does help with some of like the filler words that Jason and I have realized that we have a pattern of saying or things that we say um, continuously all the time. They're like, oh, mm-hmm. okay. So we try to be more conscious of those things. Right, but <laughs> you you guys don't say like a lot, like, like, Not anymore. like, right? <laughs> you know, I used to say, I know, I know, yeah. I know. You guys, <laughs> you know, this generation, your guys' generation has the blessing of video cameras on your phones, mm. right? Because in my generation, nobody ever saw themselves, right? True. I mean, I don't know. First time I heard my voice, I was terrified. I was like who did the voiceover? That's not my voice, right? <laughs> you know, and I used to, I used to do, st- I always had my hands in my pockets or my shoulders were hunched. I'd be like this, right? Mm-hmm. So y- you guys get it. It's just, it's a, it's a development, personal development evolution. For sure. Actually, one of the advices I remember hearing, I think it was at a SACE convention um, about public speaking, but they were like, record yourself and basically re-listen to your, like speech a few different times that you have it without audio and you're like really focused in on like your body language how Mm. you're like like you're saying like are my hands in my pockets am i looking away am i kind of 
not looking confident in a sense, then you have just the audio and then you kind of have it all together. And like you're saying, like just having that replay and really being able to analyze has been a really helpful tool for, for a lot of people, I'd say. <laughs> well, yeah, because y- you have a certain desire of what people take away, right? Mm-hmm. You know, at the end of the day, if you're for other people and the people you're communicating to, you actually want it to be useful to them, right? Or impactful. Right. And all this stuff takes away from that. True. Oh, yeah. I had another, I had a question also, like going back to your professional career um, in terms of because you retired when you were vice president, right? At the, yep. the R&D department. Is that what it was? Yep. At like when, when you were like rising through the ranks and stuff. At what point did you hit that satisfaction and be like, okay, like I'm ready to retire or I'm like satisfied with the work. Whereas like, you know, there are people that you know, they want to climb all the way to the top and then that's, they want to get there and that's like their main goal. How did you determine like, oh, okay, like maybe I'm, like I'm set here. I've felt like I've had a good enough impact with, you know, the work and my peers and that sort of thing. So I'm kind of curious, like, how did you feel certain that you were That's ready interesting. To go? Yeah. Yeah. I never envisioned I would have the top job, even in R&D, which I did not. So the chief technology officer is the top, top job in R&D. And I reported to the chief technology officer. And to be quite honest, just to be quite candid, I'm not, I don't think I was a candidate for that job anyway. The reality was it really, you know, one person once said to me, uh, or no, I should say what he didn't say to me. I actually heard the CEO of PNG say to me, you know, I always want to get to the top so I wouldn't have to work for a boss, right? But what I learned is I always had to work for a boss no matter how much I went up. Oh, now I'm the CEO. You can think I don't have a boss. Guess what? The board of directors could fire me at any moment, right? As they do, right? I still have a boss. And then I thought, oh, I really want to get to the top so I run the company. You know what I found? The higher I get, the more I don't run the company. Other people are running the company. I don't know what they're all doing. I can't keep track of all these. I'm not running the company, right? (laughs) So at at the end of the day, that was very impactful for me, even as a young person. It's like, okay, I'm I'm not going to worry about how high I go. I did have certain aspirations for how I would support my family. So I wanted to work long enough so that I wouldn't have to work anymore. And, you know, that's always a consideration. But I also wanted to feel like I'd I'd done it, right? I'd kind of gotten what I needed out of it or what I wanted out of it. I was very fortunate. P&G is a wonderful company. I was able to retire at 57, which is, I've learned is very young for a uh, corporate employee. I feel very blessed by that. And what I knew is I wanted to use my time differently. Mm-hmm. So you've heard some of the things I'm doing in retirement, mm-hmm. right? Yes. You know, I, I didn't want to have so much of my time dedicated. It was wonderful. I mean, I didn't mind it uh, as I was going uh, an employee through the company, rising up through the ranks, taking more responsibility. Yes, there's stress, but there's real reward, not just monetary. There's real satisfaction in accomplishing things as a group. But at a certain point, at least for me, it was like, hmm, you know, working this many hours a week at Procter and Gamble, you know, really having to put in this much time, you know, it's just, you know, I got more life to lead and I want to spread out a little bit. Mm. And that became clear to me and I set an end date and it worked 
beautifully. So it was great. So that's that's how it all came to me. Hmm. Yeah. I think your your thought on or observation of like the CEO always having like a boss is very interesting. Um, because like yeah, you do hear that a lot with like business owners of not wanting to report to someone or being kind of like that top person. I was wondering kind of like if there are other big misconceptions that you think of that people might think of for executive level positions. So you mentioned Jenny, you work at a smaller company. I oh, know. I think it's pretty large. I work at Northrop. Okay. I don't know how big it that's, is. That's a huge company. That's not a small Oh, I work at this little well, small company. The team itself was like. Yeah. So. <laughs> have, you, have you heard of it? Northrop Grumman, we sent like 160 people to the oh, SACE yeah. Professional Conference last year. Oh, yeah. oh my oh, goodness. Yeah. Kathy Morton was at the at the convention, the CEO. We make these, we make these little airplanes. They fight a few <laughs> wars, you know, we kind of do stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> How about you, Jason? Definitely smaller than Northrop. It's a company called HNTV. We're a transportation consulting firm. We have offices across the country, but definitely is, not. Is it is it publicly traded or private? It's publicly traded, I believe. You, you can buy the stock. Yes, I think so. Okay. <laughs> I, have well, think. I know okay. I have employee stock, but I can't remember if it's public. <laughs> yeah, it could be private if it's on the stock exchange. It, okay. Is that's how either on the NASDAQ or the New York Stock Exchange, then it's a public company. And yes, Northrop Grumman is a big company. Yeah. Okay. So, so, but, but what maybe people don't realize and I didn't realize is okay, so the board of directors can fire the CEO, right? The board of directors represents the shareholders. So, at the end of the day, every company has two bosses, one or two customers. One customer is the people you have to sell whatever you provide to, right? So whatever you're doing, Jason, your company is selling something to somebody, right? And that's right. your customer. But the other customer is always the shareholder. If it's a privately held company, it's the owner of the company or the owners of the company. Since you have shares, you are one of the owners, right? Mm -hmm. And even the CEO reports to the shareholders represented by the board of directors. That's their job is to represent the shareholders. Mm -hmm. The higher you go in a corporation, the more attention you have to spend with pay attention to that second boss, second customer, the shareholder. Because you are held accountable, right? If you're a sales rep, you got to make the customer that you're selling to happy. Or if you're making a product, you need to make the customer who's going to use your product very happy. You know, I've worked on diapers. We had to make the mom who's going to change the diaper very happy, right? But as I got higher and higher, it's like, oh my gosh, this company needs to make its shareholders happy, right? or else they don't buy our stock and our stock goes down, you know, and that's an unhappy thing. And then I heard a lot of young people go, you know what? Companies shouldn't worry so much about their stock. And I go, well, that's really interesting. He goes, because do you have any money like invested in things? Oh yeah. I invested in this. I have a 401k. And I go, how would you feel if that didn't grow at all? Right. Just sat there like putting it under your bed right? Just leave it there under your bed. No 4%, you know, no CD, nada, right? Oh, I feel terrible. Well, what makes it grow? Mm, companies make more money. Yep. They make more profit. That makes it grow. You're a shareholder. You're one. Believe it or not, the CEO kind of reports to you a little bit. Okay. For 
entry level a little bit, right? I get it. Yeah. You know, and, and the point is that is the system. And I think employees and even companies aren't very good at explaining these realities to its uh, companies aren't good at explaining these realities to its employees, right? If you can imagine, right? Because it's like, oh my gosh, we can't spend money because suddenly budgets are tight and it's the end of the quarter, right? I don't know if you've ever heard such a thing, you know, or the fiscal year is not looking very good. So we can't do this obvious thing we should be doing. Well, it's the balance of meeting these needs and the higher needs. And, and that becomes crystal clear, I think, for people who start to move up the ranks into executive levels. I hope that's interesting, but because I, I found it a revelation for me. <laughs> No, that's definitely interesting. And it's like a perspective that I've definitely not heard of. And like being on a lower level, like starting my career really early, like the some of those ideas I'm not even like thinking about at all, or I don't have relationships with some of those people who right. might be experiencing that too. So definitely really cool to hear. I think like kind of shifting to maybe kind of the opposite direction, but I know like when you think of, or at least for me, like thinking of executives, you kind of always think of them in their selves like being successful and being professional all the time and we're wondering if you would be open to sharing maybe a recent professional fail or something unprofessional that you remember in your career i guess it could kind of span between any time <laughs> oh my gosh where where where, where do you start <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh you know uh, I mean, one weird example, and then maybe we'll get into a little more serious. So in, in Japan, right? What's one of the weird, odd things to Americans in Japan, I don't know if it's still the culture because I haven't been there in 10 years, but the work culture is such that you don't really complain at work, right? You know, Americans are perfectly happy to complain about things, not necessarily unproductive, good complaining, but, you know, like, this is wrong. I don't like this. You know, when you said that to me, that would, da, da, da. and they never, never complain to the boss. So I learned pretty early on the way you get understanding what people or people are unhappy about or what's bugging them are you take them out drinking after work, you go out drinking and you get your team with a couple of drinks and you, them, they'll tell you everything that's going on in the office. They'll tell you all the things that people don't like about you. They'll tell you that, you know, they, you you get the real, 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 right? So I said, darn it, I'm going to drink it with my group more often, <laughs> which I did. And I got really, really good information. To be quite honest, right? Some of them could hold their alcohol a lot better than me. <laughs> and there were a few times. I was like, oh my gosh, what did I say? They go, you know what you said last night? And I go, what did I say last night? It's like, okay. All right. Even though I go drinking with you, I can't go that much drinking with you. You gave up right? information. <laughs> yeah, you, you still got to be the boss, right? You yeah. can't, you're, you know, even though you're out drinking together, you still got to be the boss. You know, and that's one thing to keep in mind. You know, if you're, if you're the boss, you, that relationship doesn't go away, Right. And it's especially tricky when, you know, your peers and suddenly you become the boss and, you know, one of your previous peers is now working for you, you know, you just have to change that. And, and I violated that a few times and, and that was unprofessional, right? Because I hold a lot of power over that person's career, right? Or decisions. And I also don't ever want to be seen as showing that person favoritism if they were friends outside of work, right? So right. that's a really delicate balance because, you know, you have friends at work, right? They're, they're your friends. They're your pals. You went out together. You went did this. You went skiing together or something. And all of a sudden you're the boss, right? And 
you know, they start treating you differently and you start treating them differently. And if you never have a conversation about it, you fall into this trap, which is a very unprofessional trap of, you know, avoiding the topic or trying to be the buddy still, right? Mm -hmm. Which screws everything up because, you know, a problem I've seen people do as an example, it's unprofessional, is they keep those friendships and they show up in the office. And then the other people who are now working for this person are like, oh, we're not one of the favored ones, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, well, we better make sure not to criticize her in front of her because they're pals, right? Or him in front of him because they're... And all of a sudden, it creates a very unprofessional work environment. So uh, that would be one example. You know, and and there, you know, sometimes I just try to be funny at work and it doesn't work. Uh, You know, just like most people, I think I'm a lot more funny than people think I am. So, (laughs) you know, I'll tell a few things and people's like, like, like in Japan, I once told this woman, she was really good at making diaper prototypes, you know, when we're trying to innovate new things. And I said, you know, you're the, you're the prototyping animal in the group, man. You're just a prototyping animal, right? Well, afterwards they sent the, a guy who reported to me comes in, he goes, well, they sent me in because, you know, she's really angry that you called her an animal. And I go, well, I didn't really, you know, I, was just, I said, you know, she's just a, she's just a prototyping. Animal. I mean, she's amazing. Yeah. No, no, no. You, you, you called her an animal and she's not an animal, right? She's a person. I go, hmm, okay. <laughs> I guess the humor doesn't translate. Right. And I apologize to her. Right. You know, but things come out of your mouth. And the one thing I coach many people and this is especially true of our Asian, uh, our Asian community. I think we tend to expect too much of our bosses. Okay, th- this may sound very funny. Bosses are human too, right? They have families. They have kids' soccer games they're trying to get to. You know, they make mistakes. And what was shocking to me as I became more of an executive is these executives are all have flat spots, and I do too. Most of the senior leaders I found at the company were generally really good all around, but they were great at one or two things and mm-hmm. mediocre at a lot of things, right? You know, and, and my boss, one of my, one of my mentors or sponsors once said to me, don't be disappointed, Dennis, because when I got here, I said, where are the gods? <laughs> and I concluded, there aren't any gods here. There's just people. Yeah. With talents, right? They're just yeah. people with talents and they've got flat spots too. Mm-hmm. And if you develop this mindset that these people are supposed to be gods, they're going to disappoint you. Mm. Yeah, I see. I think as like someone in early career, I think I it is hard to humanize the managers or like the directors because they, they're kind of like this figure that they'll send out these memos and like make these really like PR statements and stuff like that. So it's like hard to unless like I've had a conversation with them if if I even have the chance at all but that's that's such an interesting thing I think I never really thought about it that way I'm just like wow they just seem so unattainable right now I could I could never talk to someone of that level in my current you know standing but you know once we get there it'll be like oh, okay that's they're just people too. Yeah. They are, they're people too. They're going to make mistakes. You want to be forgiven for your mistakes, assuming they're not lazy, right? You won't be forgiven for being lazy and just doing, you know, lazy things. But if you just make an honest try, make a mistake, but they, they get, you forgive them for their mistakes too. They'll really appreciate that. And they're going to make some. 
Now, I'll give you one really amazing thing I learned was when I was there, most of the senior level people, you know, the very top level PNG were introverts. And I would have never guessed that because I see them talk on a stage and right. they give this amazing talk and the question and answer, they have all this energy and, you know, they're doing all of this. But what many of you don't see is if they're introverts, they then go back to their office and they're like, leave me alone, right? <laughs> You know, I just did a one and a half hour session with 3000 people and I just don't want to talk to or see anybody right now. You know, they just regroup, but they're incredibly talented and they deserve the jobs they have and they're amazing. But I I used to think they were all extroverts, right? It's like, oh man, look at how they interact with everybody. Wow. Yeah. Right. (laughs) No, they, they also know how to do it when it's required, but they are still who they are. Mm Mm-hmm. Would you consider yourself an introvert or extrovert? Whenever I do the test, I'm half and half. Oh, okay. Oh. Yeah. Everybody thinks I'm an extrovert. Yeah. <laughs> right? And I show up like an extrovert, right? And I'm having, and I also have fun, right, with people. I, you know, I'm not an introvert, introvert. But, you know, after I do stuff, I can't do like this and then go to another one and do this again. Oh, Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I, you know, I just want to like get this and I'll grab a book and just veg out and read my book or, you know, <laughs> I'm going to do another podcast right after. <laughs> no. Yeah. See, and that, that's how you can tell, right. Yeah. You know, no, that's not me. And I do my best thinking alone mm-hmm. to be honest. Right. So that's just my approach. And I've learned that you, you'll learn yourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. I think even after every podcast recording, we, we I mean, we, don't record another one for until next month. <laughs> Just do it once a month. <laughs> well, you know, but you, so you get it, but I, you know, yeah. but you know, you guys don't look like you're, you know, stressing out. So hopefully you're learning to have more fun with each individual one. For sure. Yeah. Oh yeah. I think the progression is, is pretty clear when you like kind of listen back to it, but yeah. yeah, the need to kind of regroup for a bit after is, is always there for me at least. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And schedule it in. Mm. Right. So the beauty of self-awareness is you can still control a lot of your calendar and just make sure you don't overdo it. Right. No, I think that's my biggest issue right now. Of like, I think in college, it's easy to just say yes to everything and go to every outing and then go to every professional thing and go to all your club stuff. And I don't know if it was just easier because of my schedule now. But when I think of doing like more than one or two things, like after work, I'm just like, I can't, I can't do this at all. Like, I don't know how I'm going to fit in. I like need to <laughs> settle down um, and just trying to find a balance of that in my life. I think that's been my goal, like every single year after college, but still trying to figure that out. <laughs> I feel the same way. Yeah. It comes in spurts, it's, <laughs> it's, it's challenging. Yeah. Hopefully. Well, what, so the reason executives survive, I've now realized is they do in fact learn to do things faster and they do learn how to, they do have the authority to give work to other people, but more than just that, they learn how, what people do well and fast, easy, and they learn to give people work like that and get help like that. Mm. Right. So, because then it frees up more of your energy there's one thing called time, but there's also energy. Mm-hmm. In retirement, I actually created an energy journal. I read this book, you're supposed to create an energy. And you learn, like, you look at, after each event, you track down 
am I more energized or less energized after I did this? More energized and less energized. And I learned what actually builds my energy, and what drains my energy and how to kind of like manage the amount of energy. Sometimes you have to do it as part of your job, right? It's just a requirement of the job. You got to do this thing that doesn't energize you, but try to like space those out. So you're not like just a vegetable at the end of the day, right? Yeah. Yeah. I really like how you, you've tracked that. Has there been any other stuff that like, you've kind of tracked that I guess maybe a majority of people might not do through either like journaling or something like that. Oh, I, I got, I got all little, I'm like little Mr. Mini self-improvement metric guy. <laughs> yeah. So, so I have a, you know, this is very funny. I showed this as a group and they thought I was really anal, but even in retirement, right. I have a monthly tracking sheet oh. and I won't show you all the details, but oh. you know, it's just tracking like, Am I doing the things that are consistent with my values? Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. You know, in, ter- in my marriage with my children, I have three daughters, you know, with my extended family, my brothers in my community, you know, am I, am I staying true to what I really value, you know, and just tracking that. And I just put away, in fact, a bunch of sheets that actually was this journal I kept of every event, like did it energize me or de-energize me? So when I was going to retire, Jason, I said, I'm going to become a great chef, home chef. Okay. And my wife was like, that's awesome. Go for it, honey. I'm, I'm, you know, and I did this and I did my energy journal and it was like, like cooking. <laughs> <laughs> Major disappointment in the Hirotsu household, let oh, me no. tell you. <laughs> We're back to just grilling microwave. <laughs> I use the rice cooker. <laughs> That's enough. <laughs> Got the basics, yeah. <laughs> but I was making these really elaborate meals and, you know, and they were pretty good, actually. You know, it wasn't like, you know, I could follow a recipe, but it was like, this is draining my energy. And then at the end of those meals, you see the pots and pans lined up in the sink and you got to do the dishes and you got to clean the stove. And I'm like, I'm exhausted. I got to keep my energy up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Live and learn. Yeah. You know, gourmet cooking out of the retirement bucket. <laughs> so I know um, we're kind of running a little short on time, but we do have kind of this last section for you that we typically like to do with our guests where we just kind of ask like rapid fire questions just kind of general questions varying a lot in in topics but okay um yeah this is a surprise to you so okay (laughs) (laughs) i'll try to try to stay light on my feet here go for it (laughs) uh you talked about food a lot what would you say is your favorite asian dish my favorite asian dish is probably sashimi Ooh. Very good. Um, jumping right to the next question. Favorite book that you read recently? <laughs> the favorite book that I read recently is. If you have it, you can pull yeah. it out. <laughs> um, yes, Background yes. Time. Okay. Yes, I'm. I'm. I'm still here. Wait a minute. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. <laughs> this is um, because I really want to show you this. Okay. It's this is called um, 
And this was a book I used in our book group. I mentioned I read a lot of, you know, thinking nonfiction. It's called The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt. Hmm. Why uh, Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. It, it it completely, in my view, explains the conflict between the American left and right today, the political divide we see. And it also covers how to bridge that gap, because I view myself as someone who could talk to both areas, despite my own views. You know, mm -hmm. Fantastic. Amazing. Okay. Thank you for sharing. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> yeah, sounds really interesting. Okay, what do we have? What is something that made you uh, really happy recently? Something that made me really, really happy recently. One thing that made me really happy recently is my daughter was uh, trying to teach uh, my granddaughter the concept of love and explain love to my granddaughter when they were at home. And she said, so mommy loves Mia, who's my granddaughter, and who does Mia love? And she said, Pop Pop, that's me. <laughs> oh. oh, that's okay. So Mission accomplished. <laughs> For the win. For the win. <laughs> By the way, during COVID, I was uh, me, I was me as a daycare because the daycare was shut down. Oh, my wife was working. My daughter and son-in-law were working, and my granddaughter was there in COVID. So we formed a bubble, and I was daycare. <laughs> Another thing in retirement that that was added to your list: <laughs> daycare. Oh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> okay. Let's see. Um, next question: If you didn't will work at P and G, what different industry would you have potentially gone into? Well, the most logical as a chemical engineer at the time would be in the energy companies. Mm. So I had an offer at mobile okay. um, when I graduated. It was in a recession and they were paying more. And, uh, you know, companies like Shell, Mobile, Chevron are very common. In addition to chemical companies like Dow or DuPont were, were very, very common. That That would have been the more natural thing. But, you know, compared to those, baby diapers i mean it's pretty irresistible don't you think um you know unfortunately i got so good at influencing and selling proposals that my group once took a poll on what i would be doing if i wasn't at png and uh -huh. the answer was car salesman oh interesting <laughs> isn't that terrible <laughs> i was like ouch Wow. <laughs> Damn. Okay, I think we have time for just one more each. If you could travel to any year, like in like a time machine, what year would you choose and why? Ooh. <laughs> I, I don't have a specific year in mind, but I think it would be 50 years into the future. Okay. Ooh. Because I think it's just unpredictable what the world will be in 50 years. Mm -hmm. And I'm fascinated by how things evolve and change, cultures, societies. You know, that's that's what I'd want. And that will be beyond when I theoretically live my life, right? 
you know, unless I'm like a hundred and I live to be 120, I don't think that's going to happen, but you know, somewhere out there and I can just see, and because afterwards you're going to go like, can you imagine like people who, who, who might've passed away in 1995, right? Said, I want to live in 1920. I want to see 2022. And they'd be like, Amazon, the online book thing. Are you (laughs) kidding? (laughs) Google that search thing. (laughs) Right. Like, and why are people looking at the, why are they looking at these phones all the time? Why, why do people, what are they, what are they doing on those things? Right. And you're like, holy cow. Right. Wouldn't that be, wouldn't that be amazing? And I guarantee you like, you know, 50 years from now, it's just, it's going to be more of the same. Right. Yeah, for sure. By the way, 50 years from now, you, you guys will be the old people and all these young people will be going, can you get with it, man? Come on, let's get with the times here. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah. it's coming oh <laughs> i think we can we, i think from with that we can wrap up so we do have okay. that, that one last question that we like to ask at the end of every episode within theme of our podcast the adult table we'd like to ask what is one thing that you did recently that made you feel like a real adult or one adult thing you wish you knew sooner and adult is like it's in quotes you know being an adult is like what does it really mean? <laughs> One thing I've done recently that made me feel like an adult. Mm-hmm. I experienced recently somebody doing something that in my younger days, and I realized this, I would have found very, very irritating, very, very annoying. And it would have bugged me a lot. But as an adult, or as an older adult, I have learned to give people a lot more grace. People have a lot of things going on in their lives. Maybe they themselves aren't realizing the things they're doing. They're under stress. Life is getting busier. And it only makes, it only hurts me if I'm upset or angry. And uh, if I can just be more forgiving, more loving, right? It just makes me feel more like an adult. And yet a second question, I thought. Yeah, which was uh, one thing you wish you knew sooner. Uh, one thing I wish I knew sooner, and this I recently learned, by the way, and this is in this book, okay, okay, is there are, in fact, two minds within your mind. And Jonathan Haidt, who wrote this book, calls one of them the elephant, and he calls the other the writer. And the the writer is your conscious mind, and the elephant is your unconscious mind. And the the writer, if it's not paying attention, thinks it's in control of the unconscious mind. But in reality, the unconscious mind is just going all over the place where, and just dragging the writer along. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the writer is the lawyer. So the elephant does something bad and the writer makes excuses to everybody for what the elephant did, <laughs> for example. And if you begin to, I'm becoming a real I've been thinking about this since I read this book and learning about this. And I realized that if I just pay more attention to my writer, my conscious mind, and give it more voice, I live truer to my values. I spend my time more wisely. I live truer to my values because, you know, instead of eating those four pieces of bacon that look really good in the refrigerator, I can hold off because I'm not really hungry. I can eat them at a different time because my writer, I'm giving them voice, right? When I when someone annoys me and I want to retaliate verbally 
or with anger, I can feel that that's my elephant. I can give voice to my writer. And I basically am cultivating my writer. And I think it's just making me happier. I hope it's making me more pleasant, but I definitely is making me happier. And that's something I knew, wish I knew when I was younger. Oh. <laughs> I feel like that was really, really well said and like, understand. <laughs> I don't know. I, I never thought about it that way. Um, definitely something to think about in the future. <laughs> so I, I hope that wasn't too philosophical as an end to all of this, but you know, it is what it is. Mm. Oh, I think <laughs> great note to kind of wrap the episode on. But yeah, Dennis, I just want to thank you again for coming on and joining us on the adult table. I really had a lot of fun with this, this interview and conversation and learned a lot. I know, like we mentioned before, kind of listening to a lot of your other uh, conversations, but getting to know you a little deeper and hear more about your experiences has been really, really cool to hear. I know before the episode, we kind of mentioned about maybe connecting with you and for all the listeners who would be curious to maybe ask you other questions about really anything you had kind of offered up your LinkedIn. Is that correct? Yes. So uh, yeah, what I, what I mentioned is if people want to reach out, ask questions, learn, talk more about something, yeah, the best way to connect with me is on LinkedIn and also mention that you you are part of this podcast because I get a lot of very strange LinkedIn requests. And if I have no idea where these people are coming from, I just don't pay attention to them. But if you mention the SACE, you know, Adult Table podcast, you know, I will accept your invitation. And if you have a comment or something you want to talk more or hear more about, I will give you an answer. Great. Yeah. Thank you, Dennis. And then for our podcasts, don't forget to subscribe so you know when episodes come out. And you can follow us on Instagram at the Adult Table Podcast for any updates. Closing out, I'm Jason Chin. And I'm Jenny Chung. And we'll see you next time at the Adult Table. Thanks for listening. Bye.